morning. Uh, the reading this morning is in James, and it's chapter 1. And we'll read the whole chapter. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without approach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises and its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be conceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a, ki that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers, let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he, what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not brittle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, 
to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Sleepy this morning. That's okay. Uh, my name's Thomas. Uh, I'm one of the elders here. Um, I don't get the opportunity to preach often, and I certainly don't get the opportunity to open a new series, so this is fun. Um, we're starting a new series, as Grace just read, in the book of James. So for the next, basically throughout the summer, um, we'll be stick, sticking around in James. Uh, if you want to plan out the rest of your year, we'll be uh, looking at a bit of a vision series after that, um, on our kind of three priorities for our church, abiding in Jesus, generosity, and mission. That takes us up to Advent, so uh, there's your year planned. Um, uh, I, I know that um, nearly two years ago, um, uh, the women in the church studied this book in a four-week series, so uh, two quick things, and that pl- please feel free to go back and look at those notes. I know MCs don't meet as frequently over the summer, and that's a, that's a good thing, um, but you still will be meeting with one another, so Use those notes as opportunities to encourage each other. Go back and look. Share the insights that you've, that you've um, gleaned from, from studying James previously. Um, if, even if our MCs aren't gathering, we're still commanded to love and care and exhort and encourage one another. Uh, and any way we can do that, and if that's through previous study, please do use those. I know also that whenever you were in James, um, you would have been encouraged at the start uh, to read through the whole book time and time and time again. As a rule of thumb, that's just good practice. If we're starting a new series and anything, if we're reading anything, just spend a bit of time, read through the whole book, especially one like James, it's pretty short. Uh, just commit to putting off one episode of whatever you're watching on Netflix. Like just stop one early or start it like later. Just read through the book, do something, just make a bit of time to spend getting to grips with the big picture of the letter. And James is, is pretty short, so it um, shouldn't take you too long. Maybe a, quick, a couple of quick reasons why we're starting James, why we pick James um, before we get into the, the meat and bones of this. So uh, the first reason we're studying James really is because of this idea of faith and works. Um, famously, Martin Luther, one of the seminal leaders in the Reformation 500 years ago, he called James an epistle of straw. He didn't really like it um, much at all, which is kind of maybe, not, I'm no great theologian, but that's maybe not one of his better moves. Um, it wasn't its biggest fan. And the reason for that is because it's, out of the 108 verses contained in the book, more than 50, there's more than 50 different commands. It's a very application-heavy letter. Um, Jesus is only mentioned, I think, twice. Once at the beginning, like Grace just read and mentioned one other time. It doesn't go through significant theological kind of themes as you'd read in Paul's letters or other places in the New Testament. But that's okay. I think sometimes we can fall into the trap of, of when we hear words like obedience and commands and laws and the works of the Christian life, we can often just cry legalism and run away. Might say that Christianity is not about doing this, this, and this. It's about receiving the love of Jesus. And that's true. But James would also say, well, actually, it is about doing this, this, and this. Because we don't just do the word we, or listen to the word, we do the word, we, we live it. And if we don't, James would say our faith is dead. Which is something that I don't think you want to hear spoken to you. 
So like, don't hear me wrong, there is a, a careful relationship to, 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 to balance here. We have to think rightly and biblically about the understanding between faith and works, and James is going to help us process, process this. But he is clear that there is a very distinct relationship with our works, and he's, he elaborates on that, and it's a good thing for us to spend time thinking about that. So more than that, faith not only acts, but James teaches us that faith is effective in the world. James addresses loads of issues. Sometimes it feels when you're reading through the book, through the letter, it feels like he's just going off on tangent, like he just thinks of something and then just goes on like a wormhole on it. So he talks about trials and poverty and riches, materialism, favoritism, social justice, uh, the tongue, worldliness, boasting, making plans, praying, what to do when we're sick, among a couple other things. James moves from one issue to the X, which sometimes makes it difficult to kind of nail down a structure, but he returns repeatedly to how faith impacts not only the details of our lives, but the details of the people's lives around you. That's not very good grammar. The lives of the people around you, both locally and globally. Faith moves Christians from outside these four walls back into homes, back into workplaces and neighborhoods, to addicts in rehab centers, to serving food in homeless shelters, to teaching orphans in in learning centers, to caring for widows in retirement homes, to providing hospice care, to training men and women in job skills to tutor people in reading, to rocking sick babies in hospitals, teaching English to internationals, and the list goes on. Faith works. It doesn't just sit in this little box inside like your brain or your heart or whatever. It moves outside and it impacts the world. A lot of this will be covered in the weeks to come. James 1 specifically introduced a variety of the book's book's themes, but its primary focus is on trials and temptation. How do we go through trials and face temptations? How uh, How do we face them? And if there's a summary from this chapter, it's that trials and temptations are both inevitable, and God intends both to deepen our faith. Trials and temptations are both inevitable, and God intends both to deepen our faith. And specifically in this one part that we're looking at from verses 1 to 12, God is sovereign over our trials. James tells us that trials are never out of God's control. Every single trial we go through is under his control, and he accomplishes his purposes through those. Not getting to preach very often, I wish wish the one time that I do get to preach wasn't on one of the hardest things in the Bible. It's tough to deal with this. Yet it's one of the most profound and crucial passages for mature, authentic Christian living. And any theology that tells you otherwise, that God only has health and wealth for you, is just straight out blasphemous. Don't listen to it. You don't need to be a great biblical scholar to to hear that and feel a disconnect whenever you read James. So before we get into it, this is one of those ones that is verse by verse, unlike Esther, which was just story. This is verse by verse, and it's packed. So before we go any further, um, I want to pray for us, because we need God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words. Uh, Lord, be with us as we study it. Be with us as we um, try to figure out what this means for our life. Show us what it means about you, first of all. Holy Spirit, be with us. Amen. Okay, right, let's keep our Bibles open as we make our way through this. So, 
James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stop there. This helps us answer the question, obviously, of who, uh, asks us, we were provoked with the question of who is James, and uh, we know from elsewhere that James is almost, this is almost certainly the James who is the half-brother of Jesus. Not that you would know that from his writing, right? He's not calling in any favors here. How many of you have a brother? Okay. Then I'm looking at all of you to testify right now, because you all know that none of you are going to call your brother Lord of Lord or King of Kings, unless he's actually Lord of Lord, King of Kings. Yes? I've called my brothers every other name, but not Lord of Lord or King of Kings. So it needs to be the Lord of Lord or King of Kings for someone to call his brother that. Um, I, thought, I think that's one of the most powerful apologetics in the Bible, that a man would call his brother the King of Kings. So James calls himself, not, he identifies Jesus as Lord. Some translations will even say that he, he, calls, himself a, he calls himself a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's, he's identifying with his readers. He's putting himself in the same position as all of us. We are all in this place of acknowledging Jesus as Lord and Christ. Um, so we also know from, if you were to look through Acts in chapter 15, James is referenced there. James was one of the leaders in the church in Jerusalem, in the early church. And it seems to, uh, and it seems to be with this authority that he writes this letter. And who's he writing to? To the 12 tribes in the dispersion. The dispersion, this, this, uh, these are Jewish Christians who once were together and who are no longer together. Um, whenever you read in Acts 7, after Stephen's speech and after he was martyred, uh, the Christians scattered across Judea and Samaria. And so this is who James is writing to. And then we get into verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So straight in there, like, it's James. I'm like, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Hi. And then no, like, hope this finds you well. He's just straight in there with, count it all joy when you meet trials. James knows he's writing to a hurting and predominantly poor community of Christians, and he's telling them to consider their trials a great joy. Before we really consider that, a few little tidbits here. That word brothers is the word Adelphoi, which means brothers and sisters. James uses it 13 times through his letter. He's relating to those who are reading as a spiritual sibling with help to offer. Over and over, you'll see James's heart for the church, for the people that he has been leading. Count it all joy when you meet trials, not if you meet trials, okay? So it's going to happen. It will happen. If it hasn't happened yet, be ready. There's something important about us as a, as a, <clears throat> as a young church as we're growing in this. If you haven't experienced trials, is to process the fact that they will come. We learn these things in time. We learn these things in the light so that whenever, whenever tough times come, we can reflect on those. It's hard to, to deal with this for the first time when you're in the thick of it. Benjamin Franklin was attributed to have said, in this world, nothing can be certain except death and taxes. But for Christians, we add on trials. This is what our life is characterized by. Count all joy when you meet trials. There's something, something important about how we engage with trials when they come, not after they're done, but how we process them when we meet them, when we encounter them. The count it all joy part... So some of your translation might say, consider it pure joy or consider it an opportunity for great joy. 
Eugene Peterson's paraphrase says, consider it a sheer gift. And notice that this isn't posed as a question. It's not an optional thing. This is an imperative, okay? This is one of those 50 plus imperatives or commands that are littered through this letter. You're being instructed to do this. Consider, it's a verb that addresses how we think, which is really important. It's not about primarily how we feel. So we know trials don't bring a smile to your face. This is not about putting on a happy face and pretending everything's okay. And in fact, I would suggest that this might not be the first thing you say to someone when they're in the midst of a trial. What's that? You lost your job? Your house burnt down? Consider it a joy, brother. Don't do that. Don't be that person. That's truth, but that's not truth in love. If you want to know how to deal with that person, how to encourage someone who's going through something, think of John 11, whenever Mary and Martha approached Jesus to tell him that their brother and one of Jesus' best friends, Lazarus, had died. Jesus didn't immediately start telling them that God had a purpose in this, although he did. Instead, he comforted them. I think it's the shortest verse in the Bible, but there's so much contained within these two words, Jesus wept. That's how you respond to someone who's going through trials. So how do we experience pure joy then when we experience trial? It doesn't seem to add up. Notice that James refers to various trials, and these trials can be big, they can be small, major, or minor. But we're wondering, how can the Bible be serious about having great joy during times of trouble? And the thing we need to realize is this, trials are not joyful in and of themselves, but they are joyful when we realize they are under the authority of a sovereign God who is accomplishing his purposes through them. Trials are joyful when we realize they are under the authority of a sovereign God who is accomplishing his purposes through them. And what is he accomplishing? Well, verse 3 and 4, James begins to pile on the ways God uses trials in our lives. And he continues all the way to verse 12, where he puts a bookend on this section by, by mentioning trials again. God is encouraging these believers to embrace trials, not so much for what they are, but for what God sovereignly accomplishes through them. And the big picture, remember, for this part is God is sovereign over trials. I want us to look at four things um, that might cause us to rejoice as we consider this truth. First one, and from verse three and four, we learn to grow in his likeness. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that it may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So the testing of your faith develops steadfastness or endurance or perseverance. And this work of endurance and perseverance and steadfast must be let to continue to grow so that we may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Excuse me. This is really the, the ultimate purpose for trials in this passage. And, it, it, and in this book of James as a whole, God's goal in our lives is maturity in him, growth in his likeness. So one day we're all going to stand before Jesus. And as we stand there, God's goal from, from now until then is to prepare you for that day. But we don't often think like this, do we? 
If we think the goal of life is to be successful, to have a good job, to get regular raises, to achieve a certain kind of standing in the world, to maybe attain a certain goal or to have a certain kind of family, then when trials hit in our family at work, in any of those places, they devastate us because they're getting in the way of that end goal, which is maybe not right. If, on the other hand, our goal is to know God, to be conformed into his likeness, then we take joy in trials because we know that no matter how tough they are, they're moving us towards that goal. So this, this James, let's call it James 1-3 lifestyle, the kind that endures testing because, uh, the, the kind that endures testing, this lifestyle requires a radically God-centered perspective on life. If I'd ask you to think about a trial in your own life, big or small, if the goal is just to fix your circumstances, you're setting yourself up for constant frustration. Because the circumstance doesn't get fixed like you want it to. And sometimes it doesn't even get fixed at all. And even if it is fixed like you wanted to, something else comes up. And something else comes up when we live in this constant state of anxiety where nothing is resolved because we have this wrong goal in mind. But if our ultimate goal is not just to fix our circumstances, but to know God and to grow in God, then we can rejoice because no matter what our circumstances, we achieve that goal. God designs trials for our growth in godliness. Um, There's a journalist, uh, an interesting journalist called Malcolm Muggeridge, he has a really interesting name for a start, and that's worthy enough to quote him. Um, he wrote this um, at the age of 75 after converting to Christianity um, in the middle of his adulthood. Contrary to what might be expected, I look back on experiences that at the time seemed especially desolating and painful, but with particular satisfaction. Indeed, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I've learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has been through affliction, not through happiness, whether pursued or attained. In trials, we experience growth and godliness like we could never experience in any other way. This is not good news to you if your goal in life is to have a carefree life. In the words of the youths, your best life doesn't necessarily line up with that, with all the circumstances going like you planned. If that's your goal, then trials will never be a joy to you. But when you set your sights above the stuff of this world and fix your eyes on God and the knowledge of him and the maturity in him, then trials will be a joy because they will teach you to know and to love and to trust him. We learn to grow in his likeness. Secondly, we learn to trust in his wisdom. The implication in verse five, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to them, to him. The implication, we're not there yet when it comes to wisdom, in case you needed reminding. We are lacking something and that something is wisdom And that's exactly what we need when we walk through trials. Like verse 2, verse 5 gives us an imperative. He should ask God. It's a command. This is what we were to do when we lack wisdom. Let's just think about how we as humans get our wisdom, okay? Three ways. 
I'm going to suggest, through knowledge, through perspective, and experience. But we have limitations here, so they lead to limited wisdom. So when we're going through trials, firstly, we don't know all that's going on. Okay, so it's limited knowledge. We, don't, we realize we don't see our situation from every angle, so we lack, we lack perspective. And thirdly, we realize that oftentimes we, we lack the experience of what to do, so our experience is limited. But if we think about those same three things with God, on the other, God, on the other hand, possesses all knowledge. He's not limited. He has eternal perspective, and in Christ he has experienced every kind of test and has prevailed. So we need his wisdom. And we can ask God for his wisdom because he gives in what fashion? Generously and without reproach. That's without criticism, without rebuke, without finding fault. Verse 5 has to be one of the most beautiful and encouraging promises in all scripture. God gives his wisdom generously, abundantly, liberally, just pouring it out without discrimination, without question or hesitation. This is the God of the universe who created all things saying, I will impart my wisdom to you. But we have to ask for it. We ask for relief from trials. And that's okay. That's an okay. That's something that's good to pray for. We should pray for that. But God doesn't always give us the easy answer. We just want our circumstances fixed. But God says, I'll give you better. I'll give you me. Come close to me. Ask me for help so you can understand why this is happening. And I'll give you perspective on what you're going through. The sovereign king of all creation has made his wisdom available to me, to you, to all followers of Christ. So when you go through trials, ask God to give you wisdom and trust him to give it to you. James tells us, don't doubt it. Don't doubt that he will answer that prayer. This, this holds true even when life is not easy or doesn't make sense. Believe that God is wise and that he is with you. Here's the thing about this. If you're new to faith or if you've not gone through trials, it can be a scary experience for the first time. But the more we walk through trials with Jesus at our side, the more we will learn to trust him. This will be like muscle memory. We learn to do this, and it gets a little bit easier the next time, maybe if it doesn't feel like it. But over time, we learn to trust him more and more. We learn to trust his wisdom. Thirdly, we learn to rely on his resources. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises and with its scorching heat and withers the uh, rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will a rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Verses nine to eleven introduces the theme of riches and poverty, and we'll see this again and again through James. But why, in the middle of a section on trials? Does James start talking about poverty and riches? Well, the church has all kinds of people in it, right? All kinds of folks. Many of the readers of this letter were likely poor. But some were rich and were trusting in their wealth. 
James reminds us in these verses that trials have a remarkable leveling effect. At the cross, the humble are exalted, and the exalted are humbled. Your mind might go to another verse that's similar to this. There's no longer Jew or Greek. There's no longer slave or free man, male or female, employer, employee. In Jesus, we are all one. But the levels still exist in society, don't they? So James is saying if you're poor, you should boast in the fact that your circumstances are actually leading you to trust in God. And in the absence of physical resources, you're driven to boast in your paradoxically rich status as a child of God. On the other hand, then, if you're rich, there's a warning, be careful. Trials will remind you that money doesn't solve your problems. Mo money, (laughs) mo problems. And one day, all of that stuff's going to get burned up anyway. It doesn't fix the hurt that you have in the meantime. It's going to get burnt in the fire. You're going to have nothing left. And your life is built on what is going to be the question. Will it be built on those physical resources or on the spiritual resources only God can provide? We learn to live Uh, No, we don't. We learn to rely on his resources. Fourthly, we learn to live for his reward. From verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. James closes this section in verse 12 by saying, the one who endures trials is blessed. If you are in a trial right now, God sees you. He is with you. He is blessing you through it. If you're familiar with the Bible, if you've been with us for a while, you might remember our series in the Sermon on the Mount and how these words echo Jesus' words. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. James, again and again, recalls uh, his, he calls his readers' attention back to Jesus' own teachings. You might find other things in this passage that we've read that also call back to the Sermon on the Mount, like the flower falling and its beauty perishing. Eventually, that comes back to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, talking about that, which is Jesus quoting Isaiah 48. At the end of verse 12, when James talks about the crown of life uh, that the the, the man who endures will receive, um, there's maybe two ways that we can misunderstand this. Uh, so maybe first of all don't picture a crown as like the gem studded headpiece worn by kings or queens most original readers of this letter would have um, immediately thought about the wreath that gets put on like the athlete's head for finishing a race uh, the, 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 the race that the, the, the athlete won, sorry. Um, so the picture here is that of running through the trials of this life victoriously to receive a crown, consider a race rather than like this gold jeweled headpiece. And second, the crown of life is, should not be simply thought of as a physical crown with great splendor. The, the crown of life is it's a symbol of receiving the glorious reward of eternal life, right? So 
this isn't my, this wedding ring isn't my marriage. This is, this is not my marriage. This is a symbol of my marriage that I wear. So the crown is a symbol of eternal life. So we consider it a joy because trials remind you that you're living for a reward to come. Life unending. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, in verse 17. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. The reward is life unending. And so God in his grace and his mercy and his love uses the trials in our lives to remove everything that won't last. To transform us into creatures that will live forever in his presence. Ephesians 2 tells us that we are like his workmanship. God is a sculptor with a block of stone. And a sculptor looks at a block of marble and chips away at every part, every lump of stone that doesn't belong on that finished sculpture. Through trials and pain and suffering and discomfort of our lives, our Father removes everything that isn't part of his final vision for us as his perfect work of art. The vision for your life is nothing compared to the vision the Father has for your life. In mere Christianity, Lewis uses the analogy of a house being renovated. He says this, imagine yourself, living, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew these jobs needed doing, so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and doesn't seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. And he intends to come and live in it himself. So even when we're experiencing the hardest times that just don't seem to have an end, God is working to make us like Christ. Even when we feel like we we can't go on anymore, we cry out, Father, why does it have to be so painful? Why does it have to last so long? He says to us, daughter, son, I know, I know. But trust me, I love you. It will be worth it in the end. I am making you like Christ. I am making you like my son. I am preparing you for an eternity of peace, of joy, and of fulfillment. I know only a little above of the trials of what some of you are going through. I don't know what you will go through. But I do know that all the trials, that through all the trials and pains and hardship, God is making you into a palace fit for the King of Glory to live in. And this is a reason to count our trials as pure joy. Uh, the old hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, might be in your mind as it has been mine. And this is what it says in the third verse. Can we find a friend so faithful? Who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. 
And here's the truth. We have a friend so faithful in Jesus who has shared in our suffering. You see, actually, when trials come, we often wonder why this bad thing is happening to us. It doesn't make sense. But the truth is, Jesus' suffering is the only suffering that didn't make sense. Because he was already perfect. He was already complete. He already lacked nothing. Yet he carried our pain. He took our suffering on himself. This is our friend. This is our brother. This is our Jesus. So while we walk this path that will no doubt lead us into trials of all kinds, they're coming. When we meet them, we can count them as joy because God is using them to make us more like this Jesus. And while we go through the dark times and the heavy times and the hard times, we know that Jesus has shared in our suffering and we can bring all of it to him. Don't feel like there's any part of your suffering or, or trials or struggles that he hasn't gone through. Because he has. God has a vision for your life, a life of perfection and completeness where you'll be lacking in nothing. And that doesn't come through anything that you do. It comes through Jesus. So let's trust him. Let's experience the full effect of our trials and let's count them as pure joy. The king of heaven would care so much about us to be at work in this way in in our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you even for the tough bits that scare us. But Father, you know what it is to go through every trial because your son has done that. Jesus, we thank you that you were so faithful, so obedient, that you took on flesh, walked among us, you lived a perfect life, And you became the punishment for sin. Father, as we walk through trials, as as we are in the midst of them, as we approach them, even as we don't know what's coming around the corner, Lord, we pray for these words to be true in our lives. Lord, make this so that we're not just uh, forgetful of these words so quickly. Lord, you're working in us to make us more like your son, and that is good news, even if it's tough work sometimes. So continue to do that work among us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.